people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Okay, welcome ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Your Folk Radio and today is February 6, 2021. And uh, we survived 2020, <laughs> although just barely by the skin of our teeth. Okay, and uh, I'm getting sort of tired of uh, doing shows about COVID and uh, all the fakitude going on. And unfortunately, all the people lining up to get shot by the big pharma people. Uh, I'm calling it pharmacide. That's what's going on in the world today, folks. It's pharmacide. They are killing us with pharmacide. And people are lining up voluntarily to get shot. I can't believe it. It's amazing, but that's what's happening out there, folks. Uh, uh, They don't realize that what we're talking about here is the biggest fraud since the Jews claimed to be God's chosen people 2,000 years ago. And, of course, the other big fraud in between was the hoaxacost. So, wow, this is a major, major hoax. We have to count it as, well, because it's actually bigger than the hoaxacost, because uh, it's global. The Jews, the hoaxacost only pertains to Germany, you know, toward the end of World War II, although it's been promoted worldwide. This event, this global hoax, is totally affecting the entire planet. Okay, just like Noah's flood (laughs) affected most of the planet, but not as severely all the way around. So I've decided to do a show about Noah's flood. Uh, It's been about 10 years since I actually did a detailed study of Noah's flood because I've always taught that the deluge was global, but the flood as it uh, explained in the Bible, was local. And I would say it's quite conceivable, and you'd really have to look at a topographical map to see if there was what we would call a basin, uh, a basin, you know, like up in uh, Kashmir, where you basically have a valley high up in the mountains where, you know, rainwater could accumulate, and uh, got very high, you know, but that's really high. Uh, Noah's flood never got that high, uh, nowhere near that high. We're talking about uh, northeastern Turkey or possibly Azerbaijan, which would be east of the, the Sea of uh, uh, Azov, you know, which is uh, the northeast, <coughs> excuse me, northeast portion of the Black Sea, where it's certainly possible that there was a a basin-type land mass surrounded by hills and mountains in which Noah lived and a heavy rain could cause that area to for water to build up in the basin and not drain off because the rain is coming down too hard. 
and uh, for the floodwaters to rise and for the, the floodwaters eventually to spill over down into Mesopotamia because we do have evidence that uh, there's a, a six-foot layer of silt <laughs> uh, that was discovered <coughs> excuse me by an archaeologist. Freshwater silt, folks. Freshwater silt at the southern end of the Tigris and Euphrates River down, you know, by, uh, I think it was called the city of Ur, okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, Evan. The, the Soxacost is the biggest money maker of all time, right? But COVID is going to beat it. COVID is going to be the biggest money maker of all time. Bill Gates and Fauci and all the rest of them are going to see to that. Because government and, of course, the international banksters are paying all these hospitals to simply fabricate COVID diagnoses to the tune of $9,000 a piece. And then if you're lucky enough to be one of those patients and get put on a ventilator, then those hospitals get paid $39,000 a piece. Wow, what a moneymaker. And, of course, they're... They're promoting all of this fake medicine that we don't need. So the so-called vaccine, they're making billions off of these fake medicines. And people are lining up to get pharmacited. They're lining up to get pharmacided. Oh yeah, Swamp Fox Gates is making (laughs) his money. He owns... Uh, the, the rights, what, to the World Health Organization, the biggest contributor to the world? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the WHO, exactly. And so he's the biggest contributor to to that organization, and uh, Fauci is in, uh, tied in with the CDC and the NAIDA, whatever it's called, the, the, the research foundation that Fauci is pretty much in charge of that donated millions of dollars to Wuhan, China, so they, they could increase their gain-of-function uh, experimentation, which was forbidden in North Carolina, so they had to move it to China. I mean, th- this reeks. Th- this reeks like a flood. <laughs> this reeks to high heaven like Noah's flood. But uh, there, there's uh, in the last 10 years, there's been more and more research done on Noah's flood, and which is roughly, for the best I can tell, is dated around 2400 BC. 2400 BC. The fact is, there's many civilizations that predate 2400 BC, and they continue to uh, exist after 2400 BC. So it's clearly a case of a major local flood that uh, would be more in the area of Azerbaijan. And dumping into what we'd call the, <coughs> excuse me, the Tigris Euphrates River Basin, and that's where the floodwaters eventually poured out into, and uh, the uh, Indian Ocean is where they would have poured out into. Now uh, I can't imagine such a flood not affecting Palestine. It, it certainly would have affected Palestine, but however, Egypt, the nation of Egypt, which goes back to many thousands of years, well before 2400 B.C., the erosion patterns on the Sphinx clearly show vertical patterns of rainwater erosion because the Sahara Desert, even in the Egyptian times uh, post-dating the flood, the uh, Hamites who set up their 
their dynasties in Egypt. The Sahara was a stinking desert. There was no rain in the Sahara Desert in those days. But there's all kinds of evidence that underneath the Sahara Desert, there was once a blooming, flourishing uh, paradise of vegetation. Flora and fauna underneath the Sahara Desert. Well, how long ago was that? Well, how about 10,000 B.C. before that? Okay. How about 10,000 B.C.? When there was extravagant rainfall in what is today the Sahara Desert. Okay? So there was a time when uh, the world, as we talked about, and by the way, I'm doing this show as an adjunct to the shows that Dan from Georgia and I are doing on Genesis because we don't want to belabor the Noah's flood story. We just went through that this morning. So you'll find that on the the GTR downloads at Eurofolk Radio. Uh, we talked about that this morning. And so, but uh, this whole story is, and this is why you have to go into archaeology, natural history, uh, even paleontology, right? Oh, astroarchaeology. How about that one? Yeah, we have to go into that as well. And all of the sciences that surround the Bible, because the Bible is a true history book. It is a true history book. Okay? Yeah, and uh, Swamp Fox just posted uh, the work by Compare. Noah's flood was not a worldwide flood. Compare uh, issued an article on that story. And, uh, you know, we, we agree with that. Okay, so I want to start first with this article on the deep sea graveyard. Now, here is my view of the situation. I'm still arguing for the basin theory, then I would say somewhere north of the Black Sea, probably north and east of the Caspian Sea, which is itself east of the Black Sea on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, that that's probably the area that Noah was living in those days. Some people put it as far north as the uh, the uh, northern Mongolia, okay, where there were like three rivers uh, from the uh, the Great Plain up there, but uh, that would not qualify as a basin. Although the Chinese legends say that around the time of Noah's flood, there was a great rainfall, and the water almost went as high because that is a Mongolia is a basin. The waters of uh, the Yellow River almost reached, uh, the flood almost reached the source of the Yellow River, but did not quite reach that high, okay? So obviously the Chinese survived it, obviously the Amerindians survived it, the uh, North American Indians survived it, the Africans survived it, because they've all been dated to many thousands BC, before Noah's flood. So uh, this is a story that uh, needs to be done in detail, and so I have reported previously that the Black Sea was at one time an inland ocean, well, inland sea, freshwater sea, that did not connect to the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean, through the Bosphorus, at some point spilled over 
because that's seawater, that's salt water, because it's connected to the Atlantic Ocean. That water from the Mediterranean Sea spilled over a, a land bridge which no longer exists, which was probably eroded away by the spillover, and flooded the Black Sea. So that the Black Sea actually today has a top layer of seawater, but far down deep is freshwater, which is a very unusual situation. Anyway, so I put the, this link in for today's show here. This is entitled, Ghostly Ship Graveyard in Black Sea Reveals Clues in Mystery of Noah's Ark. That's the title by Marie O'Neill. A ghostly underwater graveyard containing 60 ancient shipwrecks may hold the key to cracking one of the most famous Bible mysteries. Okay, so uh, this is in relatively historical times, but it, it gives us an idea that the Black Sea has had a very long history and was probably maybe even created by Noah's Flood. Maybe it got larger as a result of Noah's flood. And uh, there's evidence also of shorelines, lower shorelines in the Black Sea. Uh, you have evidence of people residing at the lower shorelines. So it's very obvious that the Black Sea was much shallower in the ancient past. And its shoreline has gone up and down periodically with history. So let's dig into this article here. A mysterious deep-sea graveyard containing scores of ancient shipwrecks could help solve one of the Bible's most famous mysteries, scientists say. The site, discovered in the Black Sea off the coast of Nesabar, Bulgaria, in 2016 by oceanographers mapping the seafloor, may reveal the historical origin of the Noah's Ark legend. The eerie spot, 300 meters below the surface, in an area known as the Dead Zone, is the final resting place of an estimated 60 ancient Greek vessels dating as far back as 400 B.C., and could be, of course, vessels even older than that. A lack of oxygen at such depths means the wrecks are perfectly preserved, their timber virtually decay-free, leaving structures and even intricate carvings intact, which is very interesting. And this article, which I'm linking for, I just put in the chat room, that has photographs of very intricate, uh, looks like metal and wood, of these structures very deep down in the Black Sea. Some of, <coughs> excuse me, got a ticklish throat this, this evening. Ah. Uh, some of the vessels, I was out in the cold too long. Some of the vessels are in such good condition, even individual chisel marks on the planks of hulls are visible to the naked eye. Okay, the page just jumped down on me, so I'll have to relocate where I was here. Okay, according to the BBC, the ships, oh, well, you can't believe them. <laughs> The ships are revealing answers about the mysterious tale of Noah's Ark in the Bible. 
Some scholars believe the apocalyptic flood, which the Bible says was sent by God to wipe out corruption and violence in the world, originated in the Black Sea 7,600 years ago. Okay, that's predating it a little too far in my opinion, but let's read on. The legend was originally told in the Babylonian creation myth Enuma Elish and in the Mesopotamia epic, epic of Gilmag- Gil- <coughs> excuse me, Gilgamesh before becoming universally known as the biblical story of Noah's Ark. A lot of uh, excellent photos here. Uh, the oldest of the ancient vessels is believed to date back to 400 B.C. Picture Black Sea map source supplied. So who knows what's underneath the silt of the Black Sea. In the 2000 bestseller Noah's Flood by William Ryan and Walter Pittman, marine biologists theorized that about 20,000 years ago, what is now known as the Black Sea was a small freshwater lake cut off from the Mediterranean by a giant land bridge. According to the Noah's Flood theory, which is not backed by scientific evidence, at least not yet, the bridge began to decay at the end of the last ice age. Well, it could have been uh, overwhelmed you know, if the if the uh, deluge was in fact global, and there were also upwellings of water from underneath the Earth's crust, increasing the water, which is what the Bible tells us in the, the territory of Noah, there was an upwelling of aquifer water contributing to the flood waters. You would have very much a a heightened local flood. A heightened local flood, which I'm assuming is in the vicinity of Azerbaijan and points north, okay, which would be to the north and east of Turkey. According to the Noah's Flood theory, uh, okay, melting polar ice caps caused the waters of the Mediterranean to rise, triggering a massive seawater deluge 200 times more powerful than Niagara Falls, okay, so they at least verify the land bridge theory, which I alluded to earlier, that the Black Sea was an inland lake uh, containing no seawater or or salt water. It caused the Black Sea to explode in size and flooding at a rate of more than one kilometer per day (laughs) swallow up an area, the land of the size of Ireland. Okay, so it was a, a small inland sea at one time or lake. In 2000, scientists found what is believed to be the Black Sea's pre-flood shoreline after unearthing buildings erected by the ancient civilizations 20 kilometers from the Turkish coast. Okay, and there are several such underwater shorelines that have been discovered, which tells us that the Black Sea has had various you know, heights throughout its history. Now, scientists from the Black Sea Maritime Archaeology Project, MAP, hope underwater soil samples taken near the Nessabar shipwrecks will help prove or disprove the Noah's Flood theory. They hope to uncover whether waters really did flood into the Black Sea at a catastrophic pace thousands of years ago, as described in the Bible. Well, they would have had to, but it wouldn't have been the water from the Mediterranean, because that's salt water. This could only be fresh water, rainwater, and the upwelling of aquifer water, which is also fresh water. So this would have contributed. This was probably part of the various you know, 
sea levels, sea levels that the Black Sea has had throughout its history. Okay, the, it concludes, the geophysicists and other specialists from the Oceanographic Center in Southampton say there's no evidence to support this theory. Okay, well, scientists disagree, so do rabbis. What we collected doesn't prove this catastrophic flood. Data shows a more likely gradual sea level rising. Well, that land bridge that separated the Black Sea from the Mediterranean was annihilated. <laughs> There's no doubt that that land bridge was annihilated. And it was probably related to the, you know, the great deluge, that, which was global. There was no doubt that the deluge was global, but the flood in Noah's vicinity was greater than, than anywhere else on the planet, okay? So, and now it's interesting that the nation of Egypt throughout its history has no flood story. It's one of the few you know, territories on the face of the globe that uh, no no flood story. All right, the the South Americans have their flood legends. The North Americans have their flood legends. Uh, the Chinese, as I alluded to, etc., etc. Egypt is one of the few places on the face of the earth that has no flood story, which is very unusual. However, the a nation of Egypt or the territory of Egypt, because it, it wasn't a nation way back in those days. To some extent, it was. It, it's uh, king lists actually go far beyond into prehistory, but very few people take those prehistory uh, king lists seriously. But uh, what we see is that what we, today uh, the Nile Delta, the Nile Delta was covered in water many, many thousands of years ago. And that water eventually receded, giving us the shoreline of North Africa that we have uh, up against the Mediterranean Sea. So in days past, and many eons ago, the uh, what we would call Lower Egypt was not low at all. <laughs> it was all water. It was all water. So uh, I'm going to just quickly reference this article here, scienceforums.com. Does ancient Egypt support a worldwide Noah-like flood? And this was posted on October 28, 2011. The ancientness of Egypt is currently without dispute. Its mythology is considered one of the oldest in the world and was written, codified at an exceptionally early period in time. We can say it was even carved in stone circa 24, sorry, 2340 BC, which is just 100 years after the traditional flood date. Anyway, the traditional flood date is around 2400 BC. In the pyramid of Pharaoh Unas, last pharaoh of the 5th dynasty. Okay, so there were at least uh, uh, who knows how many pharaohs before him in four previous dynasties. Okay, so the, the territory of Egypt is far older than Noah's flood. The language used in this pyramid is considered archaic, indicating great age. 
Egypt is an excellent source in this matter because it is mentioned early as well in the Bible, leading, lending support to the importance of Egypt in the early lives of the Hebrew people. So let's go, and I'm going to switch to the Britannica link given here in this article, Pyramid Texts. And I will copy this and put this in the chat room so people can follow along. Because the Bible, folks, is a historical book. It is absolutely a historical book. Yes, Swamp Fox. Uh, yes, so uh, uh, just to answer questions in the chat room real quick. The levels of the Black Sea have varied throughout history. It's possible that the land bridge, which was eventually washed away, was very high so that the Black Sea, as a freshwater lake, could have been much higher in ancient times than it is today. But now that that land bridge has been washed away, it's never going to achieve that height again as a freshwater lake. The, 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 the planet would have to experience another rainfall, another deluge, like uh, in the time of Noah. But uh, Yahweh said, no, I'm not going to flood the earth in that fashion ever again. Uh, we're going to judge the earth with fire next time, not with water. Okay. Yes, and Swamp Fox, maybe the mountains around it were higher, and they could have also washed away as a result of the flood. Okay. So uh, you'd have to have a, uh, a good topographical map to pinpoint the area which would qualify as the basin, which would be north and east of Azerbaijan, according to today's maps. Now, of course, a lot of erosion would have occurred as a result of that flood as well. So it's hard, those, those hilltops could, could have been eroded away as well. And they must have been because uh, after the ark landed, Noah sent out, what, a raven and a dove? And uh, there was nothing but <laughs> washed away dirt <laughs> in, in the area where the ark actually landed. And it wasn't until a few days later that the dove came back with a twig of an olive branch in its mouth. So it had to have found higher ground that wasn't washed away where olive trees were still growing. That's the only possibility, okay? So let's go back to the Britannica texts uh, uh, regarding the Great Pyramid. And it says, Egyptian Religion Pyramid Texts, uh, written by the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. We can trust them, right? Pyramid Texts, collection of Egyptian mortuary prayers, hymns, and spells intended to protect a dead king or queen and ensure life and sustenance in the hereafter. The texts inscribed on the walls of the inner chambers of pyramids are found at Saqqara in several 5th and 6th dynasty periods, of which that of Unas, last king of the 5th dynasty, is the earliest known. Okay, now very interestingly, you have in the caves of southern Europe, which are today the Alps, there's all kinds of, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name, of the uh, the records, there was a frozen uh, skeleton found in one of the caves of the Alps, dated back to like 8,000 BC. 
Okay, and there's all kinds of uh, cave drawings in there, in the various caves, showing that some of these people certainly survived Noah's flood or the deluge in Europe and may go back to pre-Atlantis times because whoever survived the Atlantis deluge uh, destruction would have had to hide in caves because the phaeton, the the asteroid, it was probably an asteroid, that hit the hit the planet Earth at at the level of Florida, where the Bermuda Triangle is today, uh, would have uh, had a tidal wave around the planet, the, the likes of which uh, was never experienced before or since. But we might have that pretty soon, right? Uh, so people living on the eastern and western coasts of America may want to move inland if, if we get hit by another asteroid. Anyway, so we have all these cave drawings uh, in, uh, in the Alps and uh, in, in, in southern Europe. But northern Europe was covered by sheets of ice, the glaciers. And those did not begin receding until around 10,500 BC. So before then, Northern Europe was just one huge sheet of ice. So this ice would have also melted slowly until the days of Noah, uh, therefore building the Black Sea into a rather large lake given that land bridge that subsequently washed away because it was always known as a freshwater lake. So now here we go to the last king of the 5th dynasty, right around the time of Noah's flood, and there's at least four dynasties previous to King Unas. The texts constitute the oldest surviving body of Egyptian religious and funerary writings available to modern scholars. A lot of ads here. Let me scroll down. Uh, Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead ancient Egyptian collection of mortuary texts made up of spells and magic formulas placed in tombs and believed to protect and aid the deceased in the hereafter. Probably compiled and re-edited during the 16th century BC, the collection included coffin texts dated from circa 2000 BC, pyramid texts dating from 2400, I'm sorry, yeah, 2400 BC, and other writings. Later compilations include hymns to Ray, the sun god. Numerous authors, compilers, and sources contributed to the work. So this is right around Noah's flood, 2400 BC. Often colorfully illustrated and sold them to individuals for burial use. Many copies of the book have been found in Egyptian tombs, but none contains all of the approximately 200 known chapters. The collection, literally titled The Chapters of Coming Forth by Day, received its present name from Carl Richard Lepsius, the German Egyptologist, who published the first collection of the texts in 1842. And there's a beautiful papyrus uh, from the 18th dynasty, which is much later, of course, that we're talking about the 5th dynasty. So, Unus, king of Egypt. Unus flourished the 24th century B.C., 2400 BC, the last king of the 5th dynasty, 24 
65 B.C. to 2325 B.C., the flood of Noah was right in the middle of that era of this dating of ancient Egypt and the first pharaoh to inscribe the interior of his pyramid at Saqqara with religious and magical texts known as pyramid texts. According to later king lists, Unas was the last ruler of the 5th dynasty, but the innovations in his pyramid complex and the use of blocks from his predecessor's monuments in his own pyramid have led some to consider him the founder of the 6th dynasty. So that would be dating from 2325 B.C. to 2150 B.C., so they want to date him a little bit later, or at least as a transitional ruler. The reliefs and texts in Unas's burial chamber and other rooms were meant to assist the deceased pharaoh in the afterlife. The texts preserve many archaic liturgies, and are, which means they, they date, they're already archaic in his time, and are a valuable compendium of early Egyptian beliefs. Unas's causeway, connecting his pyramid complex on the high desert with the valley temple near the edge of cultivation, contained interesting reliefs that probably recount events of his reign. Now, get, getting back to the fact that even already at this time, 2400 B.C., the Sahara was a stinking desert. You have to go back to around 10,000 B.C. before you come to the flourishing vegetation, the flora and fauna, which are buried under the sands of the Sahara, proving conclusively that that was a lush paradise at one time. Probably corresponding to the global um, greenhouse effect of cloud cover of planet Earth. The greenhouse effect, which obtained before Noah's flood. Okay? So that's the only possibility for the Sahara to reveal... Plus, there are, I've also reported in the past that there are these glass beads all over the Sahara Desert which can only be formed by the heat of an atomic explosion or the heat caused by an asteroid exploding, right? Okay, that's the only kind of heat that can cause these glass beads to form. We have such glass beads in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah as well, folks. We have those glass beads forming there as well. So we can pretty much tie the creation of these glass beads to high temperature explosions without a doubt. Okay? And uh, our planet has gone through many such you know, major transformations throughout its history. Noah's flood just being one of them. Okay? So, so Unas's causeway connecting his period complex on the high desert with the valley near the edge of cultivation, which would be the Nile River, contained interesting reliefs that probably recount events of his reign. His texts depict the transport of granite blocks from Aswan to the king's temple. The first known battle scene in Egyptian relief probably recorded a recording a raid against the Bedouins of the northeast frontier also appears. Trade with Syria and Palestine is attested by seas of ships carrying foreign people. So this would be post-flood post-flood, but Egyptian history does not record a flood. Finally, a fragmentary but vivid scene of starving people depicts a famine. 
Some scholars suggest that it describes Unas's aid to famished desert tribesmen. The work of the complex represents a high point of subject variety in the Old Kingdom, which is dated from 2575 B.C., predating Noah's flood, to 2130 B.C. Scenes. Unas's daughter married his successor, Teti, whom the ancient sources considered the founder of the Sixth Dynasty. So, whoever these dynasty, dynastic kings were, whether they belonged to the Fifth or Sixth, doesn't really matter much. We're, we're talking about dates here. All right, so, now an article written by Peter F. Dorman, part of this uh, Britannica collection here. This one's entitled Ancient Egyptian Religion. Peter Dorman received his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in 1985 and served as the president of the American University of Beirut from 2005 to 2015. He has received numerous research grants, so he's probably not Jewish. Ancient Egyptian Religion, Indigenous Beliefs of Ancient Egypt from Pre-Dynastic Times. We're talking now the 4th millennium B.C., 4,000 B.C. Uh, how many years? About a 1,000 years before Abraham and 1,500 years before the flood. Pre-dynastic times to the disappearance of the traditional culture in the first centuries C.E. or A.D. For historical background and detailed dates, see Egypt history of nature and significance. Egyptian religious beliefs and practices were closely integrated into Egyptian society for the historical period from 3000 B.C. Although there were probably many survivals from prehistory, these may be relatively unimportant for understanding later times because the transformation that established the Egyptian state created a new context for religion. And we, we don't need to go into that because we know that uh, Egyptian religion was influenced by the Israelites and most certainly by Enoch well before Noah's flood. Could be at least a thousand years before Noah's flood in the days of Enoch. You know, we're just going by the ages of the patriarchs given in the Masoretic text and in the Septuagint tells us there was a good thousand years of history more and more before Noah's flood. Religious phenomena were pervasive so much that it is not meaningful to view religion as a single entity that cohered as a system. Yeah, there are all kinds of pagan ideas floating around the entire planet from the days of Adam. Nevertheless, religion must be seen against the background of potentially non-religious human activities and values. During its more than 3,000 years of development, Egyptian religion underwent significant changes of emphasis and practice, but in all periods, religion had a clear consistency in character and style. And we know that uh, there was a period where uh, monotheism prevailed, and that's probably... Uh, in the days of Joseph, and maybe even a bit before, because if Enoch had anything to do with it, and uh, the the city of An, known known now as Heliopolis, was probably founded by Enoch, and so that existed well before Noah's flood. But the important thing here is the fact 
that the entire civilization of Egypt does not have any, any record whatsoever of a flood destroying that civilization. And it appears to have gone through without any interruption by a flood. Okay? But again, more, in, more uh, proof that the, what we call Noah's Flood was not global. So now I'm going to switch to this article here, donsmaps.com forward slash gobastan.htm. Okay. And this has a very interesting map of what I would call a basin. <laughs> but I'm not exactly sure where this basin is. So let's take a look at Gobastan. Recent editions. This, this is a, 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 a worldwide website here. Archaeology sites on the Don River. Uh, Tasmania, New Zealand, it's everywhere. Australia. So this is a this is a serious archaeological website here. Uh, Don's maps, rock gravings of Gobastan. Is this anywhere near Gobekli Tepe, which dates to eleven thousand BC? Okay. Clearly unearthed again by German archaeologists. Germans like to dig up uh, archaeology sites. So it has a map here. I'm trying to locate. This is clearly, a, it's a drawing. It's clearly a map of a basin which contains a lake. There's mountains to the north, and there would be, what, well, a ridge, a ridge to the south with a potential dumping point, or let's call it a um, a falls, as in Niagara Falls, to the southwest of this area. So, where is this place located? Okay, Azerbaijan. <laughs> Gobustan Rock Art Cultural Landscape. So, it's quite possible that this basin was located to the north and east of Azerbaijan. Cupules at Gobastan. It would be interesting to know what purpose they serve. So these, these are holes in the rock. Drilled into the rock. They don't know what the purpose of these cupules is. But I would imagine they served as post holes. That would be my first guess. According to the UNESCO office in Moscow, they are a form of prehistoric art found on megaliths and isolated stone boulders. I can't imagine it's just art. <laughs> I can't. The photograph they show here contains six cupules on this very solid piece of rock. I can't imagine it's just artwork. <laughs> That's a lot of trouble to go through for just artwork. Anyway, they have a size of 20 to 100 meters in diameter by 30, oh, I'm sorry, millimeters. 
20 to 100 millimeters diameter by 30 millimeters deep and date back to Neolithic or Bronze Age 5600 to 3500 BC. And of course they probably exhaust all the dating methods including the uh, carbon dating method which however requires the remains of living material, that's why it's called carbon, formerly living material, that uh, can be dated. But they have difficulty dating using the carbon dating method beyond 2000 BC. Very, very difficult to accurately date anything using that method earlier than 2000 BC. So they show two aurochs and a horse. So what's an auroch? It looks like some kind of bull, but I can't be sure. And there's a horse in the middle between the two aurochs, and these aurochs seem to be about 10 times bigger than the horse if that's drawn to scale. Okay? It would be interesting to know the date of the outline of the horse. It looks as though it is later than the aurochs. And oh, probably ox, probably where we get the word ox from. It's spelled A-U-R-O-C-H-S, Auroch, and appears to have a saddle girth marked. Interesting. So yeah, so the horse would have been carved at a later date. Although this could simply be part of the original drawing of the aurochs incorporated into the engraving of the horse. It could be. But yeah, I'm sure somebody with a, a decent dating method could figure that out. The most likely origin for Jean Oyal's version of the Shara Madoi boats from the Earth's Children series of books is in Azerbaijan, on the ancient shores of the highly expanded Caspian Sea. Okay, so it's quite possible that the level of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea was so high that they would have surrounded what we call today the Caucasus Mountains. At that time, 10,000 to 8,000 years ago, the greatly expanded Caspian and Black Sea were joined by a wide strait, as I just surmised. Since the area is today very flat, apart from the low hills which rise from the plains and on which the petroglyphs have been carved, it is likely that the shores would have provided an ideal area for the growth of huge areas of reeds, ideal for boat building. Well, Noah's Ark was made of reeds and covered with pitch. A site dated to around 5,000 to 8,000 years B.C. at a place called Gobistan, there are paintings or etchings, petroglyphs, of what appear to be longboats in the style of the Viking ships of more recent times. Thor Heyerdahl is convinced that people from the area went to Scandinavia in about 100 AD and took their boat-building skills with them and transmuted them into the Viking boats we know from digs of northern Europe. Well, 100 AD is 800 years after the Israelites crossed the Caucasus Mountains into Europe. And it didn't take them that long to get to Scandinavia, going up the Don River, t 
into that area where the Don River ends, or begins rather, and then floating downstream uh, the river toward, uh, toward the Gulf of Finland. It wouldn't have taken them that long to do that. You could have done that. Well, if you really wanted to do that a couple of years, but probably it took them several hundred years to migrate up to the Gulf of Finland. With the boat-building skills of the Israelites, that would have been a cinch, an absolute cinch. Carvings of reed boats at Gobastan that attracted Norwegian explorer Thor Heyerdahl to visit the site. So those carvings are still there. And they, they date around to 5000 BC. Now this is the area where Noah's flood would have been the deepest. Okay? So it's quite possible that Noah's Ark was built in this area. There's a real nice basin there. And it's, it's quite possible also that the land, which would include Arabia, was higher in those days and that the entire landmass sunk subsequent to Noah's flood. It's, uh, that's also quite possible. Petroglyphs in the National Park Gobistan in Azerbaijan. And you could see, well, one, two, three, four. And this has 10. This has 10 uh, people. Clearly humanoids. Four on top, six on the bottom. Photo Azeri, July 2011. Okay, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site considered to be of outstanding universal value. Another carving. An animal, possibly a horse. That definitely looks like a horse. Pecked out in outline. So a beautiful archaeological site here. I mean, this stuff is just out in the open. You don't have to dig for it. Enters to Kobistan petroglyph site, Azerbaijan. Boy, th this looks like uh, the Gobi Desert. <laughs> I mean, this is an arid place today. It was not an arid place during the days before Noah. There are a number of images here, the most prominent being two human figures and an aurochs. Again, probably what used to be called a reem, which was a giant ox. High on the left side of the center of the image, above the large aurochs, is a goat, or ibex, and a long-necked animal. Okay, hard to picture that. It's not so obvious from the photographs. But we have all of these petroglyphs. Now here's a, here's a good one. Aurochs carved into the rock at Gobastan. So it has two horns. And there's a couple of them here. Clearly, uh, there's uh, there's no humanoids carved into there. So even even if it were to scale, you couldn't uh, you couldn't assume that the whoever inscribed these rocks was doing it to scale. But here's one uh, about halfway uh, a third of way down the page. Uh, the following is by Nigar Abazadeh from the site. When I was just a kid in high school, our ancient history teacher took us to see the Stone Age petroglyphs at Gobastan. It wasn't far away, only 54 kilometers southwest of Baku. Baku, I believe, is on the southwest shore of the Caspian Sea. 
I was amazed by the carvings. I saw there ancient peoples, goats, deer, boats, and hunting scenes. The images made a deep impression on me and led me to do historical research about the, quote, magical images in ancient art in Azerbaijan for my bachelor's degree at Baku State University in the Department of Culture and Art. And so you see there's a, a clearly sh Viking-shaped boat and people of various sizes. So who knows if they're to scale or not. <coughs> okay. And if they call this a dance scene. Maybe it was. Maybe, maybe it was people dancing because the flood was over. All right, and uh, what looks like an antelope, and uh, really excellent photographs. You, you can't appreciate this without looking at the photographs. Donsmaps.com forward slash gobastan.html. Okay, uh, that's where to go to see these rock carvings. And here is Thor Heyerdahl standing in front of one of these rock carvings, which gives you an idea. So um, it's uh, from his head. He, his head is just below this rock carving of a boat, a Viking-style boat, and it looks to be about three feet wide just from looking at his head being underneath there. The carving of the boat is about three feet wide. Okay, and... Caves and rock outcroppings surround the village, whose name can be translated as Ravine Land. The spurs of the Great Caucasus Range descend to the Caspian along the oh, Jiran Ketchmez River. Settled since the 8th millennium BC, the area contains thousands of rock engravings spread over 100 square kilometers, depicting hunting scenes, people, ships, constellations, animals, etc. Why have we never heard of this place before? Why have we never heard of this place before? Well, it's because the reality is that academic archaeologists don't want the Bible verified. All right? They don't want the Bible verified. Neither do the uh, young earth creationists. They don't want the Bible, the true Bible, verified. They want their version of the Bible to, to maintain and not the real Bible, which we know depicts an earth much older than they do. Okay. So, uh, down to about uh, five-eighths of the way down, Gobastan occupies the southeastern spur of the Great Caucasian Range and lies west of the Apsheron Peninsula in the basin of the Jaran Ketchmez between the mid-channel and lower reaches of two other rivers, the Pirsagat and the Sumgayet. It is a mon monticulate semi-desert era dissected by numerous gullies and ravines. So probably these gullies and ravines also date back to ancient times when there was copious water, which no longer exists there. The mountains there are separate elevations straggling among mud, uh, mud volcanoes, which are called pilpile by the local people. Mud volcanoes. These volcanoes periodically erupted in ancient times, throwing out millions of tons of mud and billions of cubic meters of combustible gases, 
which blazed up from every spark caused by a collision of flying stones. Oh, my goodness. So flying stones had a flint spark and caused the combustible gases, probably methane, to explode. The sudden appearance of gigantic columns of flame the deafening rumble of the clouds of smoke shading the daylight inspired the aborigines with awe and fear. And I have a feeling, folks, this is going to happen again worldwide. These natural phenomena, which could not be explained in the remote past, favored the emergence of many places of worship in this area. Oh, uh, the, the fire temples, probably. It's quite possible that the fire temples of this area are based on these well, mud mud volcanoes, which actually spewed out flammable gases. During the Middle Ages, some of them were changed to the Muslim religion. The upper plateau of Mounts Bayukdash and Kichikdash is covered by a bed of shell limestone 10 to 15 meters thick. What's limestone composed of, folks? Seashells. The upper plateau is covered a shell limestone, 10 to 15 meters thick. You don't get 10 to 15 meters thick in five months. No way. Absolutely no way. Yeah, they look like frog people, don't they? <laughs> okay. We, we are getting some real archaeology here, folks. Some real archaeology. The upper plateau of Mount Jing, Jingerdog is also covered by shell limestone, but only one to two meters thick. In the course of ages, these limestone beds fractured and split into fragments under the action of natural forces, atmospheric precipitation, wind, etc., etc. Okay, now, let's get back to Noah's Flood. We are told that water jutted out from the aquifer underneath the surface. A lot of this aquifer water ha ha gushing out would be simultaneously with the land dropping down to a lower level. Because the water underneath the, the, the land would have helped to hold it up. Uh... What's the terminology here where you have fracking? In areas where fracking is conducted, where they're actually forcing gas and water, the land caves in as a result of the fracking. So underwater, under, under surface water movement would cause the surface to collapse. That's probably what happened during Noah's flood, eventually. Okay. On the clumpy rocks, one can see whimsical aeolian relief forms, hollow mushroom-like jointing, some of them with through openings, many of them even with smooth surfaces and lace and honeycomb patterns. They can all be rightfully regarded as classical specimens of geological and natural phenomena of this type, with all kinds of carvings of humanoids. So this area is rich, absolutely rich, with 
archaeological finds. Okay, just a very, uh, very important stuff. Okay, so at this point, I'm going to switch to, this is a creationist article. This is from the Journal of Creation, apparently issue number 31, or series 31, number 1, 2017. Two date range options for Noah's flood. And I put the link in here for you all. Swamp Fox, so when you ponder the Nazca lines of Peru, the sheer size of them only to be seen high up in a plane or space, or also could also be seen in the reflection of the firmament, that is before they came down in the flood. That's quite possible. And of course, in South America, all the all the Americas, the Indians have a tradition of a great deluge and flooding, but nothing to the extent that we're talking about here in Noah's flood in this area, which I have been assuming to be north and east of Azerbaijan, and encompassing the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. This article. Two date range options for Noah's flood by Brian Thomas. Let me get a quick swig of water here. Conservative authors have long argued that Genesis chapters 5 and 11 chronogenealogies contain gaps and that these and other unanswered chronology questions require ages that conflict with at least some of the Bible's stated figures. Well, if we just take the dates and ages of the patriarchs before Noah's flood. There's, uh, I don't think anybody doubts the, the greenhouse effect theory of the atmosphere before Noah's flood. I, I think that's probably universally accepted now. So we would have had clean air. We would have had plenty of oxygen. Uh, there would have been, you know, fresh food, fresh water, you know, not polluted water and not garbage food. There were no McDonald's restaurants around. And so we can understand, given all those differences in the atmosphere and the geology of the day, the climatology especially, we can see people living a thousand years. And if the Bible says it, then it happened. So, but uh, these academics doubt the, the dates of the flood and uh, you know, the ages of the patriarchs. Uh, we have no reason to doubt them. But it continues, uh, this inadvertently diminishes confidence in, script, in Scripture's veracity. Yes, it does. But these are just guesses. You know, if you've got a document before you that says something, you take it at its word and then you see if you can disprove it. And they've never done that. Hebrew scholars have recently resolved long-standing biblical chronology issues, like the question of Genesis gene- genealogy gaps and confusing data in 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, I don't see any gaps. I don't see any gaps in genealogy at all. They can now include every time-related Bible verse into a complete and error-free chronology from Abraham to Paul. Okay, 
That would be easy because all you have to do is uh, list the ages of the patriarchs and when they gave birth to their oldest son. You just add those dates. And that takes you, apparently that's what they've done with Noah to get the uh, 2400 B.C. date for that. This paper merges these chronologist results with the Masoretic text of early Genesis to confirm earlier calculations for the flood at 2518 B.C. and with the Septuagint text of early Genesis to offer an alternative earlier estimate of 3168 B.C. Okay, so there's a 600-year difference between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. The article begins, Creation Science Books, Articles, and Presentations Advocate Recent Creation. For example, assertions of powerful scientific evidence from astronomy, geology, genetics, and paleontology that the world is thousands, not millions of years old, are common. Well, how many thousands? And certainly the evolutionists have to exaggerate into millions unnecessarily. Why does this issue deserve emphasis? The perspicuity of God's word and, by extension, its everlasting relevant truth claims dovetail with the precision level of its numbers. A more accurate understanding of the Bible's chronology can empower its defenders with more confidence in its inerrancy. Yes, the Bible is inerrant, but we have to interpret it and translate it correctly. Some argue that since biblical authors nowhere claim an attempt to construct a timeline of world history, or at least a history from the first to the last Adam, its readers should not expect one. However, the scriptures do supply hundreds of chronological clues. Why do they exist if not to mark time? Further, if God were to mark time, he would do it without errors, absolutely, and he would have instructed Moses to record dates though not without challenges that only study can overcome. The possibility that Scripture does supply a long chronology accurate to the year. The time unit it most often supplies should be examined. In that light, exactly what age do the Bible's chronological data permit, suggest, or specify for the earth? Irish Anglican Archbishop James Usher's fame endures even today from publishing his Annals of the World in 1650 A.D. His date for the flood of 2348 B.C. was printed in Bible margins for decades, but has since fallen from favor. The 1961 book, The Genesis Flood, gives an often-referenced answer among creation researchers to the question of the biblical age of the world. Its Appendix 11 teaches, as have several generations that have followed as example, that possible gaps in Genesis genealogies permit the addition of perhaps thousands of years into what was otherwise would appear to be a straightforward chronology. I don't buy that. I don't, I don't believe that there's gaps in the genealogies. When the Bible tell us, tells us that Adam begat Seth and Seth begat Methuselah and Methuselah begat so-and-so and begat Enoch and Methuselah and begat Noah. And it gives us their ages in years. There aren't any gaps. However, I would concede a possibility that those years 
before Noah's flood were perhaps shorter or perhaps longer than the years we have today. But even so, that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't increase, you know, it certainly wouldn't go into the millions. I would argue for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years predating the Genesis story of Genesis 1-1. Okay, but given the chronology in Scripture dating Adam to about 5,000 B.C., we don't know when Adam begat Seth. But given that information, that's closer to 4,000 B.C. And if you take the Septuagint reckoning, you add another 500. So that's 4,500 B.C. So somewhere in that area. Okay. Conservative biblical historian Eugene Merrill argues the same in his book Kingdom of Priests as noted below. Adding time to accommodate presumed gaps in the Genesis 11 chrono genealogy would increase Usher's 2348 to some unknowable but more distant year. Well, it is, he says, presumed gaps. Where are you getting these gaps from? The, the patriarchs lived so long and it tells us when they begat their eldest son. <laughs> it tells us that. How can there be any gaps in that? Unless there was a previous son that wasn't recorded. Why would the Bible leave that information out? It's, it's actually very important information because that information gives us the priesthood of Melchizedek, the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son. That's why Enoch was not counted as a priest of Melchizedek because he didn't live long enough to outlive his, the eldest son previous to him. So, presumed gaps. Yeah, I mean, th that's including information that is not uh, relevant. You can't presume gaps. Anyway, these gap advocates, not to be confused with gap theory advocates, thus argue that the most biblically accurate chronological statements permit the earth of Six to ten thousand years old, which is which is fine. This would represent, but no, but not from the, the dating of Adam, because those eras in Genesis chapter one, at least six of them preceded Adam. So six eons preceded Adam. You know, if we assume that they're at least a thousand years old. So we've got a planet which is roughly 11,500 B.C., which is when the last Ice Age ended. This would represent a 40% error margin for a scriptural data based on the Masoretic text and a 25% stretch of even the longer Septuagint textual records of Genesis 5 and 11. Okay, so it's very interesting that the Septuagint and the Masoretic differ from each other to such a great extent. One recent creation paper that reviewed the gap versus no-gap perspectives of biblical chronology ended without resolution. So even scientists can't make up their minds. However, active chronologists have within the last half century satisfactorily resolved enough quandaries, like the gap question for creation advocates to teach and defend a tighter biblical history including two date ranges for Noah's flood year, and thus elevate appreciation for biblical 
precision. Okay, well, that's to, to pacify the, the non-Christian critics and Jewish critics of the Bible. This paper outlines three steps to assigning biblically and historically accurate B.C. date estimates for biblical events such as Noah's Flood. Each step is treated below in more detail according to this outline. First, scholars show how the Bible best answers the questions of gaps in Genesis 5 and 11 chronogenealogies as per below. Now, what he had, okay, I haven't read that far down, so where are these gaps coming from? I don't get it because we have the patriarchal ages and the birth dates of their first sons. That should be very straightforward. I mean, Archbishop Usher was on the right track when he did that. Second, following with a high view of Scripture, one can straightforwardly add years from creation to Abraham with reasonable wiggle room and allowing the possibility of Septuagint as well as Masoretic textual traditions as described below. Third, possibly the, the years before Noah's flood were not to say, well, if you go by the Enoch calendar, the years before Noah's flood were exactly 360 days. But there, even there, there was a change where he adapted it to 364 year, days per year. And then we have, in the biblical account, we have an almost 24-hour day gap, and then a partial gap, recorded separately, thus giving us a 365th day, <laughs> okay? So that's all recorded in the Bible, and that all makes sense. Young, uh, So, Andrew Steinman and Roger Young have one, successfully applied the inductive method that Edwin Thiele began in his attempts to harmonize dozens of, of apparently confusing time indicators recorded in Kings and Chronicles covering the, the divided kingdom period. Two, constructed a consistent year-by-year timeline from Abraham to Christ that treats every chronologically related Bible verse literally. Well, that's what we should do. Three, cross-check that timeline against independently recorded sabbatical and jubilee years. That's very good. And four, confirmed extra-biblical events that occurred during the divided kingdom period and that anchor B.C. dates to the Bible's timeline. Yeah, astro-archaeology. In summary, adding gap-resolved Genesis chronologies extends Steinman et al.'s timeline backward from Abraham to the flood, as described below. Step 1. Fill the gaps. Genesis 5 and 11 would need alterations in order to accommodate gaps. So what are these gaps that he's talking about? How might such alterations to the following sample section look? Alright, so they're quoting... Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. But in his 182nd year... Okay, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, 187, yeah. So, in his 187th year, he begot Lamech. That is a fixed date. All you have to do is add up the dates between the birth of the father and the birth of the eldest son. 
That's what Archbishop Usher did. That's how he got his dates. If one allows name gaps, then Methuselah may have begotten an unnamed son who begot another unnamed son, or perhaps more, making Lamech Methuselah's great-grandson instead of his direct son. But that disregards the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, which apparently this author is not taking into consideration. However, either the time span between Methuselah and Lamech, according to the phrase, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech, must have been 187 years, or the text loses some or most of its meaning. Yeah. Hello? Therefore, adding years to this number could begin to strip this verse of its function and content, all without contextual justification. Absolutely. Hardy and Carter expressed the same objection when they wrote, quote, when a biblical author says a person was X years old when something happened, if we do not take that as a historical statement, we quickly get to the point where words have no meaning, unquote. I agree. Merrill wrote, quote, Clearly, Shem preceded Abraham by many more years than a strict reading will permit, and thus there was sufficient time for the knowledge of Yahweh to have disappeared from the line of Shem and for a need to have arisen for Yahweh to reveal himself to pagan Abram. Uh, I don't think Abram was ever a pagan. Th that's a misstatement there. Okay. But any, in any case, yeah, the Israelites did forget the use of the name of Yahweh. And in fact, Moses had to learn it from Ruel, who was a son of Keturah through Abraham. He was a Midianite. So apparently the Midianites did not lose the knowledge of the name of Yahweh. They preserved it, but the Israelites lost it, which is understandable because they were in Egypt for 400 years and for some amount of time, maybe 150 years of that, maybe not quite that much, they were slaves to the Egyptians and they would could very possibly have lost the knowledge of the name of Yahweh during that time. Just what makes this assertion so clear? And what does a strict reading mean? If a doctor warns her patient of a dangerously high systolic blood pressure of 169 millimeters of mercury, and the patient determines to understand this less strictly, then he puts his life at risk by lying to himself. That's, that's well said. One who fails to grasp the strict meaning of statements spoken in a language fails to grasp the author's intended meaning. In other words, what it literally says. That's the strict meaning. Merrill's phrase about having sufficient time for people to reject God falls short, sustained since that can occur in only one generation. It could in one generation, but the Israelites were in Egypt for many generations before Noah relearned re it from, from Ruel. A tiny fraction of the thousands of years he wants to add and seems to be a red herring in any case. Yeah, so this is one of those guys who wants to insert gaps, who wants to insert thousands of years, which aren't necessary. God recorded specific numbers for these patriarchs' lifetimes, so he who doubts these numbers should present clear and powerful justifications, not unnamed allegations. Merrill's motive becomes clear in later passages of his book. 
he must add years to the Bible in order to accommodate the secular archaeologist age assignments that he accepts. There you go. Is he an evolutionist? Probably. And evolutionists have to add millions of years to the historical account in order to justify their view of reality. That's basically all there is to that. Similarly, Whitcomb wrote, Near Eastern cultures apparently have a rather continuous archaeological record based upon occupation levels and pottery chronology. There you go. That, that speaks for itself. That's how they uh, come up with Bronze Age, Iron Age, Stone Age. That how they, that's how they come up with these dates. Back to at least the 5th millennium B.C. So, 5000 B.C. The chronology can be ascertained by simple archaeology. Dating pottery styles and their movement from one place to another. Flint uh, arrowheads are an excellent uh, dating method. By the way, flint arrowheads of white people are found in America going back to 10,000 B.C. as well. All right, Remember Kennewick Man? A Caucasian skeleton in Kennewick, Washington, dating back dating to 8,000 B.C. And it seems impossible to fit a catastrophe of the proportions depicted. I have to scroll up, sorry here. In Genesis 6-9, through 9, it's a, such an archaeological framework. Yeah, well, their archaeological framework, yeah. The, the non-biblical framework. But that archaeological record was compiled by secularists who, by definition, have a low view of Scripture. And as creation scientists have long demonstrated in other historical disciplines like geology and paleontology, secularists often force-fit observations, in this case occupation levels and pottery ages, into their preconceived long-age timeline, which goes beyond Scripture into millions of years predating Genesis. Anyway... In addition, assertions of 5th millennium B.C. rely on radiocarbon ages, which are systematically inflated with older samples and untrustworthy in that context. As I said earlier, the carbon dating method becomes very inaccurate before 2000 B.C. These quotes reveal an eisegetical trend, eisegesis being attempting to force Scripture into your worldview instead of letting Scripture speak for itself, which is exegesis. These quotes reveal an eisegetical trend of adjusting factual statements from Scripture to accommodate a man-made, evolutionarily interpreted archaeological timeline. What a mouthful. Anyway, Henry Morris seemed less sure of the need to accommodate secular archaeology's non-biblical age scheme. No, we don't have any need for that. But begrudgingly regarded gaps when he wrote in 1976, quote, Assuming no gaps in these genealogies, a possibility which perhaps cannot be ruled out completely, but for which there is certainly no internal evidence, there was a total of 1,656 years from the creation to the flood. <coughs> That's assuming seven-day yams in Genesis 1. That is a, a young earth creationist statement there. Since then, scholars have dealt with these gaps. Sarfati enumerated helpful reasons to reject the idea of names missing from the patriarchal chronogenealogies. 
Name gaps that old Earth apologist Hugh Ross also teaches. For example, adding unnamed generations cast doubt on the perspicuity of Jude 1.4. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. He was the seventh patriarch from Adam. But he was not a high priest of Melchizedek which Shem was after the death of Noah. Quote, Sarfati uh, wrote, It's a red herring. Suppose we grant the opposition's case that there were many missing names between person A and the next in line B, such as Enosh to Kenan. It wouldn't change the fact that there are still X years between them, for example, 90 years between Enosh and Kenan. That is, even if there were gaps between the names, there are no gaps in time. I agree with that statement 100%. Thank you very much. 100%. So, we continue. Johnson and Ice, I-C-E, a person, had already argued the same. They first considered the chronogenealogies, 19 repeated standards, which Johnson called sub-time frames, as follows. Quote, in other words... Deductively speaking, there are no in, 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 inferable, I haven't come across that word before, inferable gaps of unknown time length in the time between these scripturally defined 19 sequence sub-time frames. Each of these 19 sub-time frames is a link within the entire link chain of sub-time frames, in turn, so that the complete sequencing of all 19 sub-time frames a word I've never used before either, exactly equals the entire time frame from Adam's creation unto Adam's birth. I would put it this way, from the birth of Seth. From the birth of Seth unto Abraham. However, see below on the possibility of those numbers spanning the time frame of Adam's creation to Haran. Does the inclusion of gaps carry the consequence of altering the words of God? Well, yeah, if you're including stuff that isn't talked about in the scriptures, then you're you're fiddling you're fiddling with the scriptures. We shouldn't be doing that. Okay, so uh, let me scroll down here. We have this is a pretty long article uh, trying to find. Uh, synchronicity with the BC dates. Okay, so scrolling down uh, to the figure of the Babylonian Chronicle, which is a stone inscription around when was this, when is this dated? I'm not sure. But anyway, the Babylonian Chronicle helps anchor biblical chronology to a B.C. timeline, and this stone is found in the British Museum. Okay. I'm just going to go to the heading, Synchronized with B.C. Dates. Chapter 3 in From Abraham to Paul summarizes synchronisms that anchor B.C. Dates onto Scripture's chronology. Key details from this chapter come from Kenneth Kitchen's article, quote, How We Know When Solomon Ruled, available online. First, an Assyrian record called the Monolith Inscription names Israelite King Ahab's defeat during King Salmaneser's third sixth year of reign. In 853 
BC. I like the fact that they're using BC instead of BCE. That's a Jewish invention. The Black Obelisk, or Kalu Obelisk, names Israelite King Yehu's tribute payment in Shalmaneser's 18th year in 841 BC. Using chronological data from 1 Kings that span from Yehu and or Ahab to Solomon, Steinman calculates the year of Solomon's death to 931 BC. Other connections confirm the state. First, Pharaoh Shoshenk, the biblical Shishak, invaded Judah in Rehoboam's fifth year, 926 BC. Rehoboam was the first king after Solomon. Second, Pharaoh Siamon's reign length of 986 to 968 overlapped Solomon's reign in just the right time frame for Siamon to have been the pharaoh who conquered Gezer and whose daughter Solomon married. How old was Solomon when he did that? <laughs> okay. Um, in those days, I don't think the pharaohs were pure-blooded descendants of Ham anymore, although there might have been, because there was intermarriage between the Hittites and the Egyptian pharaohs just before Moses. In fact, I have argued that the pharaoh who expelled Moses and the Israelites was a half-breed Hittite Hamite. Okay, but let's continue. So this is even later. So it's not likely that there was a pure-blooded Hamite ruling over Egypt, although there might have been. They might have gotten rid of the uh, the Hittites altogether, <coughs> who might be the um, Hyksos kings. That, that might be a reference to the Hyksos kings, who were eventually kicked out. Anyway, third, Josephus recorded the Tyrian king list. It indicates 143 years from the construction of the temple to Pygmalion's seventh year, enabling yet another calculation that confirms Solomon's reign dates. Folks, uh, all this proves that the Bible is the most accurate history book ever compiled. The, The recent archaeological studies prove it. And you still have secularists who claim that Jesus never existed, or that David never existed, and blah, 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 or that Moses never existed. All right, so this uh, this is really good archaeological information. Other synchronisms confirm Bible events, including Menahem's tribute to Tiglath-Pileser III in 743 or 742 B.C., as noted on the Iran Stila, and Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Egypt mentioned in 2 Kings 23, verses 29 through 30, and elsewhere, as recorded on a Babylonian chronicle at 605 B.C., Okay, so all of these dates that have been calculated by Bible scholars are turning out to be accurate and confirmed by archaeological data. Greedy details that comprise some tomes undergird the above sketch, according to which Solomon's last year, and thus the first year of the divided kingdom, was 931 B.C. Next, Steinman established a date for the Exodus. Okay, so we're looking for the date of the flood. And so I'm going to scroll down. That was excellent information about the accuracy 
of biblical chronology. That was that that was actually tremendous. And so that was on page one twenty four of this document from creation.com. A Masoretic text-based BC date for the flood. So I'm just going to scroll down to that point. In yeah, uh, okay, Adolf says that in the time of Moses was a Canaanite pharaoh. Um, could have been a Canaanite. Uh, the information I have that he was a Hittite, but the Hittites were Canaanites. Okay. And so Josephus records that. So that would be accurate. That would be accurate. Very good. Okay. So getting back to this article. Additional considerations will be required to update minimum maximum age ranges. For example, can the apparent contradiction between the 400 years of Genesis 15:13 and I have to scroll up the 430 years given in Exodus 12:40 to 41 be resolved? Careful Bible reading presents a satisfying solution. The former 400 gives the number of years that they will afflict them. And the latter, 430, gives the total number of years of the sojourn. In other words, the Israelites were not afflicted for their first 30 years of their sojourn in Egypt. One can easily imagine an abrupt change in Pharaonic dynasties affecting prevailing attitudes toward the Hebrews during Joseph's later years. Absolutely. They were not afflicted while Joseph was second in command in Egypt. These two numbers, therefore, don't conflict, but instead allow cross-checks, as do other Bible numbers. Bible no, See, you got to read it carefully. Bible numbers, for example, those found in Genesis 25, etc., etc., etc. There's about 10 of them listed here. Accumulate 1,234 years. That's an easy number to remember. 1, 2, 3, 4 between the birth of Abraham and the death of Solomon. Adding 1234 to the death of Solomon in 932 B.C. sets Abram's birth to 2166 B.C., according to Steinman's timeline. With the flood to Abraham, Genesis 11 chronogenealogy, having no name gaps and, more importantly, no time gaps, the time span between the flood and Abram's birth should very nearly equal 352 years. This follows by adding 292 years from Genesis 11 to 60 presumed years between Terah's firstborn and Abram, as discussed above. 352 years before 2166 marks 2158 BC for Noah's flood. What did I say? 20, it should be 2518 marks the date for Noah's flood. 2518 B.C. And I've been going by the date of 2454 for a long time, but uh, it was never presumed to be totally accurate. Adding a generous 14 years for unknown gestation and paternal age months from Arphaxad to Abram gives 2532 B.C. for the flood using the Masoretic text. All right, that seems fairly reasonable. How do these compare to some other calculations? First, these fall inside Hardy and Carter's range of 2600 B.C. to 2300 B.C. About a century ago, Basil Stewart 
calculated a flood date of 2344 BC. He did not have the solution to the king's reigns that recent chronologists have deduced and which Steinman summarized in 2011. Also, his siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 585 BC should be updated to 587 BC, which is only a difference of two years, to anchor BC age estimates to biblical chronology. Yeah, well, whenever we can anchor the biblical chronology with archaeological dates, that's a tremendous achievement. As another comparison to an even earlier chronologist who also had a high regard for Scripture's precision, Peter Akers supplied 3284 B.C. for the flood. That was way too early. He constituted a fixed point on Egyptian chronology to find his much older date. Well, the Egyptian chronology is dubious, okay? Much more dubious than the Bible chronology. Since then, enough problems have arisen with especially the older Egyptian chronologies to demonstrate their insufficiency as chronological anchors for biblical numbers. Always, the Bible should be assumed to be correct, and uh, the chronologies of other cultures uh, accordingly situated with the Bible. That's how it should be done, not vice versa. Indeed, some admit Egyptian chronology is a tattered collection not at all deserving the solid historical clout it enjoyed when Akers was writing. Thus, 2518 to 2532 BC should represent a tight and yet responsible date range for the flood using the Masoretic text. Finally, Archbishop Usher derived a flood date without the results of key archaeological finds, including the Assyrian king records and Hazor's excavation, and without decision table resolutions for the divided kingdom chronologies that permit precise synchronizations with surely dated extra-biblical events, although he had access to historical sources now gone. Very interesting. Yeah. They're probably still in the Vatican archives, though. <laughs> Usher also used a 215-year sojourn in Egypt, which Steinman demonstrated unnecessarily constrained scripture. Oh, that that's an error, because we just talked about it's either 430 or 400, well, and the 30 years was the years that the Israelites were not afflicted by the pharaohs. Okay, so it's either it's either 400 or 430, depending on which uh, which date you start with. So the 215 was an error, so it should have been 215 years back back in the past. Let's see what he says here. Usher also used a 215-year sojourn in Egypt, which Steinman demonstrated unnecessarily constrained scripture and was influenced by a belief in 6,000 years of total world history. Even with these differences, Usher's age of 2348 B.C. for the flood deserves appreciation. Well said. It's a little too late. Now, the Septuagint. How does the Septuagint differ from the Masoretic? Heading, a Septuagint-based B.C. date for the flood. The Masoretic text originated in the 2nd century A.D. It contains a few corruptions that other texts can resolve so that the original inspired word can be reconstructed. Now, the first thing that occurs to me here is that it's possible that the Judahites, not Jews, 
the 70 or 72 Judahites, the, the Septuagint comes from the number 70, LXX. So it's assumed that 70 Judahite scribes, who were both fluent in Hebrew and Greek, translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Septuagint. It is possible, just giving my opinion here, that Ptolemy Philadelphus, who uh, ordered that uh, document to be translated, may have suggested longer time frames based on his Egypt. Oh, I'm sorry, Greek reckoning. Maybe that's why the Septuagint contains a longer time frame. Let's see what the author says here. More often than not, however, the MT corrects other textual traditions. Jewish scholars, that is, Judahite scholars, translated the ancient Hebrew scrolls into Koine Greek to form the Septuagint during the 3rd century BC. I think it's uh, right around 230 BC when it was completed. New Testament authors quoted the Septuagint. The MT Genesis 5 chronology from Adam to the Flood shows 24 more years in total lifespans. All of them for Lamech. The MT post-flood chronology records 70, 780 fewer years than the Septuagint, except that pre-Christ copies do not have Canaan or his 130 years in Genesis 11. Oh no! I didn't know that. So maybe the Masoretic is actually more accurate than the Septuagint because uh, he's uh, revealing problems with dating that I was not aware of. Anyway, Table 1 shows variance between the MT and the LXX and the Samaritan Pentateuch, a third textual tradition that does bear some, some Samaritan-friendly corruptions in places. Okay, that would be uh, expected. Remember, there is a group of Samaritans who claim to be Israelites who have their own Bible and they reject the Talmud. They reject the Talmud. They're not great in numbers, but they do have a Samaritan Bible, Old Testament, which differs markedly from the Talmud because they reject Talmudism entirely. And they also claim to be Israelites. Anyway, next sentence, or next paragraph. Most creation scientists use and defend the MT for biblical chronology because the other texts show evidence of editing. However, Sexton and Smith recently used at least 11 arguments in favor of the superiority of the Septuagint for Genesis 5 and particularly the Genesis 11 chronologies. Okay, a vast majority of pre-Reformation Christians endorsed the Septuagint chronology. Well, let's assume that there are problems in both texts that need to be resolved. But we're getting closer and closer to an accurate date for the flood of Noah. Okay, I think he listed uh, like 2518 was his date. All right, let me go through this list. I think I have time to go through these 10 items here. Okay, so here are 11 items 
for taking the Septuagint chronology favorably. One, a vast majority of pre-Reformation Christians endorsed the Septuagint chronology. But that's understandable because that's the text they were using. But they had no way of uh, verifying any of these dates unless they you know, did an Archbishop Usher type calculation. Number two, no known pre-second century history uses the MT timeline, and that is correct, because the Masoretic text wasn't finished. It was based on the original Paleo-Hebrew, but it's a Talmudic rabbinical version that wasn't completed until 1000 AD. Okay, so there's problems with that. Number three, MT defenders long-held speculation that the LXX translators inflated patriarchal ages to conform it to Egyptian chronologies has no evidential basis. Well, that is what I suspected when I first started reading it, that, that perhaps Ptolemy Philadelphus ordered them to stretch the dates. They probably would have object, objected to that, but you know, if the guy, if he's paying you to do something and he he doesn't know Hebrew, but he wants you to inflate the dates, that might have happened. Anyway, the LXX actually shows no such trend elsewhere in its text. Okay, and the copyists of that time, third century BC, were held accountable to precision record keeping. Well, at least they were in Palestine, in Judah, they were. Number four, the odds that separate scribes independently inflated Genesis 11 numbers in the LXX and the Samaritan Pentateuch to exactly the same ages are unbelievable. Well, I mean, one could be copied from the other. Maybe the Samaritan Pentateuch is based on the original Hebrew. So you would expect it to differ from the Masoretic text. And so maybe, yeah, but the point he's making, yeah, it's sort of unbelievable that the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch would agree with exactly the same ages. That is, yeah, that is correct. That is unbelievable that uh, if there's, that this Hebrew document uh, would agree with the Septuagint in all all the dates, that, that that would be an accident that they were translated from a reliable original Hebrew source long ago better explains their identical numbers shown in Table 1. Okay, so let me go through the table real quick. Uh, the dates of ages of the patriarchs. Noah in the Septuagint, 500, Masoretic, 500, uh, Samaritan, Pentateuch, 500, Shem, 100, they all agree. Our facts add, Septuagint has 135, Masoretic Text has 35, the uh, SP has 135, Canaan is missing from the Masoretic and the SP. Canaan is included in the LXX and is listed as 130 years. Sheila, 130 in the Septuagint, 30 in the Masoretic, 130 in the SP. So this seems to be a trend from here on out 
that 100 years are deleted in the Masoretic text for Arphaxad, Shila, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Serug, and then we have 50 years deleted for Nahor, and then Terah, they all agree, <laughs> 70 across the board. But the totals for the Septuagint are 1,070, for including Canaan, for the SP 940, and there's got to be a misprint here. It says 292 for the Masoretic text. That that can't be correct because the first number is 500. <laughs> so there's a misprint here. This is crazy. Uh, don't know what to make of that. Sorry, folks. But anyway, this shows that the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text of 100 years for all of the named patriarchs, that's significant. So let's see what the author makes of all of this. So that was point number four. Point number five. Jewish historians... No, there were no Jewish historians from 200 B.C. And really not uh, any from to 100 A.D. Those were Judahite historians. Although the Masoretes, uh, then known as Pharisees, were making claims about Scripture already, but they, no, no written. There was no written Talmud until 100, 1000 A.D. So it would be Judahite historians and some Pharisees up to about 100 A.D., including most of Josephus's numbers reference the Septuagint chronology. Five ancient texts fit a trend of Judahite scribal chronological deflations, not inflations. The earliest witness to the Masoretic chronology occurs in the Seder Olam Rabbah, which is obviously Jewish, which severely reduced post-exilic chronology in order to disqualify Jesus as the Messiah that Daniel 9.6 foretold. Very good. Very important point. That was point number seven. They deliberately deflated the numbers so that they could disqualify Jesus as the Messiah. Number eight. The earliest witness to the Masoretic chronology thus postdates the earliest witness to the longer Septuagint chronology by four centuries. Number nine, the Masoretic Genesis 5 numbers fit the hypothesis that systematic chronological reduction ensured that no antediluvian patriarchs lived beyond the flood, and yet that the numbers for Noah, Shem, and Terah remained unaltered since they meshed with other chronological statements. So all the all of the deflation occurred after Noah. The deflation in the Masoretic text occurred after Noah so that the pre-flood patriarchs, those dates would be identical. In the... <coughs> excuse me. Number nine. The MT Genesis 5 numbers fit the hypothesis that systematic chronological reduction ensured that no... Ant- oh, I just read this, but it's worth reading again ensured that no antediluvian, that is, before the flood, patriarchs lived beyond the flood, and yet the numbers for Noah, Shem, and Terah remained unaltered since they meshed with other chronological statements. Okay, so so the MT and the LXX and the Samaritan Pentateuch pretty much all agree on the antediluvian numbers. Number 10, if Eber was still alive and twice Abram's 175-year age at death, 
as per the MT, then why does Genesis 25.8 say that Abram died in a good old age, an old man and full of years? Rather, the Septuagint numbers show Eber passed away four centuries before Abraham's death. Number 11. The Pharisees generally believed that the Messiah would arrive during the 6th millennium after creation. They marshaled a few, uh, the few remaining scriptures available to them after Bar Kokhba revolt in 132-136 AD to finalize the Masoretic text, or the basis of the Masoretic. It wasn't written until 1000 AD in physical form. It was being compiled during all this time. This moment in history could have enabled their alteration of Genesis 11 and 5 to shrink the world's chronology enough to discredit Jesus as the 6th millennium Messiah without accountability. And of course, they're still waiting for the Messiah. Okay. So, uh, this is a very good rundown on the, the reason why the dates between the Masoretic and the Septuagint differ. Okay. So, conclusions. What do we have here? An outline of three steps to assigning biblically and historically responsible B.C. age estimates for Noah's flood has been presented, and it suggests several conclusions. First, the idea that Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies have gaps is increasingly difficult to support and irrelevant in light of the internal textual evidence for complete gapless chronogenealogies. There was simply age deflation in the Masoretic text. That seems to be evident from this account. But that deflation only occurred after the flood. Okay. Okay, third, uh, second, one can construct a tight year-to-year chronology using just the Bible, though it has taken several generations of chronologists to settle key questions like the web of numbers in the Kings. Third, recent scholarship has reawakened interest in the Septuagint's early Genesis chronology, which adds about 650 years to the Masoretic's time span between Noah and Abraham. Thus, instead of a continuum of age possibilities from 2500 B.C. to 3170 B.C. and maybe beyond, historical evidence suggests that the flood occurred at either one or the other tight time frame. Fourth, the 5th millennium B.C. flood age estimate that Morris and Whitcomb allowed in the Genesis flood lies beyond the age estimates given here and beyond those of Hardy and Carter, Johnson, Ice, Sarfati, and others. Okay, above. Finally, two B.C. date estimates for the flood include a Masoretic placement between 2518 and 2532 B.C. and a Septuagint placement circa 3168 B.C., given all the difficulties talked about in this article. So, this is one of the best articles I've been able to find uh, highlighting the differences between the Masoretic and the Septuagint accounts of the lives of the patriarchs. But since all of this deflation in the Masoretic text occurred after, let me go back to the table, it certainly occurred after Noah and after Shem, after Shem, reducing the age of Arphaxad from 135 to 35, that if that is in fact the case, then the Septuagint date for the flood would be the more accurate. And so he says that that date is 3168 B.C. 
3168 BC. That's very reasonable, and it takes the Septuagint dates as being accurate, which I think in this article they have given a very good account for why we should consider the Septuagint dates to be more accurate than the Masoretic. Okay. All right, folks, I, I think uh, that pretty much settles it. Uh, the scholarship in this article really uh, is outstanding. Can't think of a better article on this subject ever before. So, like I said, it's been about 10 years since I've addressed this issue of the date of Noah's flood. And I th- as I recall, I've been, I think it was, two, uh, two, uh, I remember, no, 2345 BC, <laughs> because that's another one of those easy, rememberable dates. 2345, and they had a 1234 date in here as well. So, uh, 31, so that would be, oh, that would fit the 650 years. Or here, the empty post flood chronology records 780 fewer years than the Septuagint. And so if you add 2345 to uh, 780 to 2345, that gives you very close to the 3168 BC that this author suggests is the correct date. Okay, but in any case, we know that the Masoretic text has been tampered with by the rabbis. Numerous other things, but uh, these dates are critical. So for this reason, we should go with the Septuagint chronology. There are other problems with the Masoretic text. uh, They've deleted all kinds of stories, verses, uh, changed the meanings of words with their vowel points, etc., etc., etc. Now, this, uh, this... Samaritan Pentateuch, which I was not aware of until I read this article, should be consulted as a possible, more accurate Hebrew account. Up to this point in time, I was really only aware of the, uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there they are, there's only one Dead Sea Scroll complete book of the Old Testament, and that's the Book of Isaiah. All the others are fragmentary. So the scholarship has really advanced in the last 10 years. Again, this article was written, I think it says here, 2017. Yeah, 2017. And so we are uh, looking at a, a flood date of around 3168 B.C. Good stuff, folks. Very good stuff. All right, Bible scholarship continues. And there are... Christians who want the the Bible verified by history, <laughs> right? That is not true of the vast majority of your Judeo denominations today. They just want to teach dogma. They don't care about getting the timeline or accurate facts of history, archaeology, etc. They're not interested in that kind of stuff. But we in identity are we because we believe in truth. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you tomorrow on Bloodlines. Take care. Yahweh bless. Everybody. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to 
fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.